Welcome to episode number eight of the Road to Cinema podcast, where we talk to director Bill Tech, whose latest documentary, One Day Since Yesterday, Peter Bogdanovich and the Lost American Film, premiered at this year's Venice Film Festival, alongside Peter Bogdanovich's first narrative film in over 10 years, She's Funny That Way, starring Owen Wilson. The documentary explores the personal relationship that Peter Bogdanovich had to They All Laughed, a romantic comedy starring John Ritter, Dorothy Stratton, Colleen Camp, and legendary actors Ben Gazzara and Audrey Hepburn. Bill Tech and I discuss the influence They All Laughed has had on film critics and filmmakers alike, including director Quentin Tarantino, who was interviewed for the documentary, who ranks They All Laughed as one of his favorite films. We also discuss how the tragic murder of Dorothy Stratton affected Peter Bogdanovich both personally and professionally, leading him to distribute They All Laughed on his own as an independent distributor. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, and to read the Road to Cinema blog, log on to jogroadproductions.com. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter for the latest updates, at jogroad. And now we join director Bill Tech as he discusses what inspired him to create this new documentary, One Day Since Yesterday, Peter Bogdanovich and the Lost American Film. So what a lot of people don't realize is that documentaries, uh, unlike narrative feature films, uh, really take a long time to put together, to shoot, to edit, to, you know, really develop a concept. Uh, so what is the genesis of this film and how far back does it go? This one goes back. Um, I had the idea to do the, the film about their last, you know, forever because it's my, my favorite film. Uh, I'm pretty much obsessed with that movie, and as I, you know, began getting obsessed about it, I got, you know, very interested in Bogdanovich and his other films and so forth. So the idea has been running around my head forever. And I actually met Peter in 2004 and uh, spoke to him about the movie and you know how he felt about certain uh, homages that I that I felt maybe I'd observed in, in some of uh, Tarantino's work. Um, but I didn't pitch him the idea of making the film or anything like that until 2010. And I uh, wrote him a letter and um, expressed that, you know, I, uh, I was very interested in making this film about They All Laughed and about kind of his career, but really using the story of They All Laughed as the starting point and, and as the skeleton of the film uh, to hang the rest of the story on and his love affair with Percy Stratton and how that affected his life post uh, and and uh, he responded you know favorably to that and we started shooting in 2011 so it's been a, it's been a long process wow so uh, what was some of the the first footage that you shot in uh, 2011 were those interviews or were you sort of following around uh, Peter at all it was interesting um, the very first thing that we shot was uh, for the very first person and the very first subject uh, was Ben Gazzara and uh, I said uh, you know, we better start with Ben and start with, you know, the people that are a little bit older. I believe he passed away uh, last year. Is that right? I think it was a year prior. A year prior, yeah. And I think this might have been Ben's last interview. Um, we were also lucky enough to, uh, you know, have the opportunity to interview Andrew Saris. And it might have been Mr. Saris's last interview as well. And I hope that I, you know, do right by those gentlemen. And, and uh, you know, I, I certainly want to make all that footage available at some point because those guys are such treasures. And they talked about a variety of subjects, uh, especially Ben. He really got into, you know, his work with Casabetes. And, and so it's a, it's a pretty hearty interview. And I just, um, Peter gave me some numbers for some people, you know, when he, once we agreed and, and, and made a deal where I would be able to make that film. And, uh, he was immediately, well, what the hell is this thing you're going to do for Peter? And uh, I'm like, you know, I'd like to interview you. Yeah, sure. How about three weeks from Thursday? And, you know, before I go, I was on a plane to New York City to interview Ben. And the cool thing about it was I didn't know that this was the date, and I don't think he knew, but it wound up being uh, Dorothy Stratton's birthday. Wow. First day of shooting. And when I called McDonald's, I said, Hey, listen, I just wanted to tell you, I shot the first thing. I interviewed Ben Gazzara, and I just want to say thank you, and it went great. And, and I was like, I didn't know today was uh, would have been Dorothy Stratton's birthday. And he said, yeah, yeah, I was just sitting here uh, thinking about that. And the lights just went out. And I was mm -hmm. like, well, that's kind of eerie. Mm -hmm. And uh, just to make it even more 
strange and, and beautiful, we actually got word that we got into Venice uh, to the Venice Film Festival on Peter's birthday. Wow. 20, 2014, so very strange. Wow. And uh, when you were shooting the documentary, was he also uh, developing uh, She's Funny That Way into a feature? Yeah, he, he was trying very much to get it going. And um, he was just starting to to work with uh, Noah Baumbach and, and Wes Anderson to try to get them to, to involve. Or they, they had offered, I guess, to, to become producers. I don't know exactly how that went, but they were just taking their first tentative steps towards putting that into play. And I know the script had been around for a while. Uh, that he and uh, Louis Stratton wrote together. And yeah, I believe that, John Ritter uh, was originally intended for the for the leading role. I believe so. He said that a few times, and um, and uh, I think it was called Squirrels to the Nuts, which is, I guess, a Lubitsch reference. And uh, you know, I, I I remember that at that time, you know, Peter was uh, was really working hard to get to get his movie going, and and I I, I was so taken by his work ethic. Um, you know, just the first times I, that I met him, just being blown away by like, wow, this guy just gets up and grinds every day. You know, he's just, he's 74, but he works probably harder than anybody I know. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's incredible. I think it was, um, there was sort of a long period between, I guess, his last uh, narrative feature, The Cat's Meow, and, you know, this was sort of a passion project. Uh, she's funny that way, or Squirrels to the Nuts. That he had really been trying to get going. Did, so, did you document a lot of uh, Peter trying to sort of get the film together and uh, uh, sort of move along? With I really didn't have the opportunity to, uh, because uh, you know I have a pretty clear focus that this would really be about Vale uh, Laugh and about his career and his life after. I saw this project and I continue to see it as this kind of tragic love story. It's really amazing love story this guy fell in love with this woman and this guy fell in love with this movie and both those things kind of in my opinion have really really uh, colored and influenced his life and his film since then um, and I think Schools to the Nuts and She's Funny That Way is really important and you know for him personally as well because it's after they all laughed he really did work not really just simply for hire, because Bogdanovich put so much of himself into the films. And I do explore that in the last act of, of this movie uh, that I directed uh, one day since yesterday. I explore how much of himself is in these movies that we don't think of as being auteur works. But yet, uh, I, I think he's doing what Ford did and what Hawks did and what all the directors that he admires did, which is put so much of himself into these movies in very subtle ways. Um, and a couple of people that I interviewed in the movie pointed that out. Uh, the, the critic Fernando Croce, who's based in San Francisco, and uh, Peter Tonguez, who's a wonderful writer, has write, written a couple books about Peter, and he's based in Ohio. And uh, they both uh, they both observed that as well. But he hadn't done a project that he had originated since they all left. And then She's Funny That Way is the first project since then, so it was so exciting to watch him make something that was clearly his vision. And then the reception that it got, you know, I, I saw events that people were roaring. I mean, people were just, they were roaring with laughter. And just to see, like, this guy, not only does he still got it, he's got it better than ever. You know, that was really cool to see. Oh, definitely. And uh, what's interesting about uh, They All Laughed, it sort of came at an interesting period in uh, Peter Bogdanovich's career. He had made uh, three huge... Uh, successes uh, in a row, uh, The Last Picture Show, uh, What's Up Doc, and Paper Moon. And then there were sort of a couple of uh, films that were sort of lukewarm with the critics and the box office, uh, Long Last Love and Daisy Miller. And uh, then he had made St. Jack, uh, which is you know also an incredible film. And uh, They All Laugh, uh, They All Laughed came after that. Uh, so what, what in the film sort of uh, traces sort of where Peter Bogdanovich was uh, when he was about to sort of develop, uh, they all laughed and you know go into production on it. There, there we get pretty pretty strongly into into detail. And just to touch on your other question, we do show him shooting. You know, some of she's funny that way, and we we're on a set and we see kind of the way he you know pulls together a lot of people from the past and a lot of things from the present, and the way he was kind of you know his works. They're they're all so they have such a unity to them if you know how to look for it. So it has 
touch on it, but they all have to where we really get into detail. We trace basically the development of St. Jack, uh, how the script idea came about, what it was like shooting it with Ben Gazzara and having George Morfogan on the set, which is, you know, one of the producers and one of the stars of the lap, and kind of how he and Ben telling each other stories and about, you know, romantic misadventures. Um, and Peter being single for the first time, having just broken up with Sybil Shepherd, how they kind of concocted this idea of uh, uh, making a movie about their lives. I think maybe Peter was 40 at that moment, Ben was maybe a little bit older, and really, you know, telling a movie from their point of view and how they started to develop that. And, you know, Peter putting many girls that he dated and, uh, uh, you know, he had cast initially his sister in it. He cast, uh, she later wound up not doing it, but, um, you know, he had his, his assistant um, plays Leon, Leonidopoulos' assistant, uh, his friend, uh, Blaine Novak, and, uh, was a distributor, and he winds up acting in the movie. His daughters play his daughters, and I feel like, like for the first time, they wanted to explore very, very personal kind of filmmaking. And for me, it, it, it really stands as like one of the most interesting examples of personal filmmaking because it's it's a coded movie. So on one hand, yeah, these directors are following these women and it's very entertaining. But on another hand, it's intensely personal. And I love the fact that it has these two levels. I think a lot of his work has that and a lot of the 70s auteur have that. But for me, they all left this, the movie where I see that the strongest. It, it is a, a definitely like a Fabergé egg of a movie. Yeah, it's definitely um, in terms of sort of making a film that's within a genre. It's you know, it's a romantic comedy, it's a mystery, but yet you can still interlace within that you know sort of standard genre, you know, your own personal element, and that's really what Peter did uh, with They All Laughed, and that's why it sort of stands above other films of that time that are just sort of standard genre fare that really don't have that personal element to it. That's absolutely true. And, uh, and when I saw it, I mean, did you see it when you were like in your, in your teens? Yeah, I saw it uh, probably my senior year of high school, freshman year of college around that time. Yeah, I saw it going too, probably around the same age, maybe a little bit younger, maybe, maybe one year younger or so. And it's such, it's that, that romantic feeling of like, being, you know, in love and, and that heady kind of trippy feeling. It, I've never seen a movie that captures it, that, that captures that feeling so well. Um, and uh, in the, our interview with Tarantino, he talks about that too. You know, he's like, I've never having been in love and never having had a serious girlfriend before. I really fell in love with it. Well, I think the depth of the movie is that you look at it again when you're 40, and I'm 46 now, and it's a whole other movie. It has a tremendous depth to it, and uh, it reminds me of Ebert's review of uh, of uh, I think it's La Dolce Vida, you know, where he talks about how man that movie just changed for him over the years, and this movie had that effect on me and even the people in it. Bogdanovich's daughters, Louise Stratton, they were telling me, man, we saw one movie when we were thirteen. It's a whole other movie now that we're quote unquote middle aged. Yeah, there's definitely um, a sadness. There's a, a melancholy laced into it, or sort of like a, a bittersweet feeling. That's uh, that I always responded to. Absolutely, absolutely, and he had that that feeling too. You know, he's a, he's a he uh, he's one of the sweetest guys. He's one of the funniest guys, but he he's a um, but there's a, a wistful melancholy thing, you know. And I think that movie, boy, it just captures it perfectly. And uh, when you were uh, sort of researching uh, the, the production of the film, the, the aftermath of the production, uh, was there anything that surprised you that you, you weren't aware of uh, at the beginning uh, that may have taken you off guard or that really uh, sort of delved you in? That's a great question. I wish I, I, wish I had a, a good answer for it. I think what, we, what I was most struck by really didn't have all that much to do with the film. What I was most struck by was how much uh, of his life he had documented and how much, uh, how deep the file uh, that he kept were. So if there was a, a line in the movie that was influenced by a note from his daughter, I had access to that note from his daughter. If there were, not because he provided me with it per se, but he told me where I could go to find the files. 
in there, and he was so brave. He gave me access to his whole life. You know, I was able to access the most intimate love letters and uh, the sweetest correspondence from his, you know, grade school age daughters, and really see how like he was really making this beautiful Valentine to all these women in his life and to exactly where he was in his life. And I really, there's no other movie from the '80s that's that's that personal from a major director, uh, and and also the, the, the just the, the way he had the command of the medium, you know, where it's hey, this part's like a silent film, and this part's almost like a Cassavetti film, and this part is like nothing else. This is just pure Bogdanovich kind of magic, you know. He, it, 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 I was struck by how much personal detail and personal mementos he had held on to, and and of course that I was able to see how that made it into the film and and, and, and cutting between those things I think it, it gives the movie a little bit of a charge yeah definitely there's a there's a great sense in the film that uh, it's as if you're you're almost like hanging out with the with the characters like you're just sort of spending time with them even though there are gears of the plot that move along at certain points it, it still has that sense of you know I'm just I'm with these people and you know like you're having a good time and you're Thanks. That, that, that's exactly what, uh, what Quentin uh, Tarantino says in the picture. He says, uh, "Forgive me for calling it a picture. You can't hang out with Peter McDonald's <laughs> picture," you know? um, which is that's uh, funny. But um, that's exactly what Quentin said. He said, "You know, it's one of the great hangout movies." And he said, uh, "Days and Confused is one." And um, I, Don McCarthy was observing that perhaps Hatari is another one. And I think that laugh definitely has that feel where you're just like, oh man, this is just cool to be with these people. And the, the plot is, is, as Molly Haskell points out in the movie, is very kind of Renoir-esque. There's not no real bad guy. It just kind of, and really most of his films don't really have a, a, a quote-unquote bad guy. And, I, and you're just kind of hanging out with these people and, and floating along. And when you spend like two minutes with this guy, you see that like, this is kind of what his life is like. I mean, it's very kind of groovy, even at, at in its obviously not at the times of great tragedy, but 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 even with the sadness and the melancholy that informs some of the events of the movie, um, there's still a, a wonderful feeling of of longing for something better and 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 you know in that hanging out just just handling your sadness and just kind of putting your base, your best foot forward, you know, and that, that I think comes across also in the movie as you're hanging out with you guys. Oh, definitely. Um, in terms of Peter Bogdanovich's uh, view on the film, is he able to watch it without um, sort of going in and uh, reliving the, the tragedy that happened after the production of the film? I think it's easier for him now. He does mention in, in this documentary that I directed, he, he mentions that it's very hard for him to watch the film, that he has to kind of divorce himself from what happened, and uh, he doesn't use these words, but I'm using them, right? he says, you know, but he has to give himself some distance from what happened, just kind of enjoy the audience enjoying the movie, because if he gets too into it, you know, Dorothy, John, Audrey, now Ben, all gone, and that's very, that uh, affects him greatly, I mean, he's a guy of great feeling, so, and anybody would be affected by that, of course. Uh, and I think it's very difficult for him to watch. I think it was difficult for many years for his children to watch uh, because their lives all changed after that movie, uh, you know, very profoundly. Um, and I try to capture that in, in the documentary as well. I think in recent years, it's become easier for him to watch. I was able to film him, you know, kind of hidden and stole the shot a little bit uh, when they when they presented the film at BAM, when Noah Baumbach presented the film at BAM in 2012, I think. And and I, you could see that, like, it was one of the first times he's, I think, he was able to sort of relax and kind of just enjoy the audience enjoying the film. It was one of the first times that I think he'd seen some of the wonderful writing that's been done on the Internet about the movie, um, which I researched and so I found, you know, Sheila O'Malley had written about it and Jeremy Ritchie and uh, Jonathan Hertzberg. And so I kind of went to these different people and, and Fernando Croce and I kind of traveled all these different places and interviewed the people that had written about the film and, and showed him a lot of the, um, of the stuff that had been written online. And he was like, wow, 
really see how much people had come around to appreciating it. Because there hasn't been any serious writing about the movie for 20, 25 years until kind of the rise of the internet. Quentin had championed it, and, uh, uh, you know, cinephiles knew about it, but I think until the, the rise of the internet and blogging, you really didn't have that humongous, hey, this is a classic. It's kind of acknowledged now at this point. Yeah, no. What's great uh, now is just sort of time has gone by, and I I believe sort of that when the when the film was originally released, uh, it came on the tail end of, of the tragedy that had occurred. Uh, so now people can watch it uh, sort of at a, at a distance from that and really see the film for what it is and the craftsmanship behind the making of the film, uh, which you know is incredibly written and you know really shows Peter Bogdanovich's uh, directing style, which I, I feel like is consistent through all of his films. Uh, you know, even the films after they all laughed, like Mask, uh, the thing called Love, uh, Cats Meow. Uh, you know, he has such a consistent style that you know shows in all of his films. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I didn't realize how strong Peter's style was until I started working on the film. I mean, he was my favorite director, and he is my favorite director. But I guess I was not really watching it appropriately. I mean, I knew that. The first film had, you know, a consistent theme to them. I knew that, you know, uh, you could go Nickelodeon to picture shows. You could go What's Up Doc to, to, um, you know, Daisy Miller. I mean, I could see where those films had a commonality, but I felt like after they all left, oh, you know, Peter was just kind of doing this work for hire and so forth. But I couldn't have been more wrong upon upon rewatching those films. They've become my uh, kind of. I prefer those films, and you're right. That style is so um, uh, strong, and the style from Cat Me Out to Thing Called Love to Noises Off to you know uh, Texasville. I mean, those are masterful movies. They're so, and there's such consistency. Um, the way he stages I, his actors, he he has these you know beautiful compositions and he lets shots play out for long periods of time uh it's just something that's so rare uh today in you know modern movies i hadn't realized that the the, the, the level of of technical expertise uh, involved in in those films i mean even they were my favorite films you know i would think about altman's zoom and i would think about the Palmer split screen and I would think about, uh, you know, uh, certain things that Spielberg would do, but I would never think about Peter in terms of kind of the technical bravura style of filmmaking. But it's so there. I was just watching a piece on the internet about Spielberg's, uh, I guess they're called Warners, which are like these, you know, kind of where a lot of action occurs in this one shot, but they're not really these huge tracking shots, you know, like Sheltering Sky or anything like that, or The Player, but they're, but they're these, these, these very kind of, uh, you know, I'm not going to cut, but a lot's going to go on. It's going to be very intricately staged. I didn't really think about Spielberg as a director that was doing that. That's such an old Hollywood kind of thing to do. But then, of course, I started seeing the Peter's work, and they all left as full of it. So where I thought they were four cuts, there's none. It's just so well staged. I'd seen it in Noises Off, and I was aware of it in many of his movies, but I wasn't aware to what degree the guy is staging a ballet. Yeah, and he has a he has a great use of, uh, of wide angle lenses, and also um, you know having an incredible depth of field. You know his range of focus. You know foreground, background. You know you you just have a tremendous sense of the whole place. It's like almost like a painting. Uh, it's a very, you know, painting, painterly uh, composition that he creates. It's, it's tremendously, I think, uh, painting influence. And, and I'm sure you know his father, you know, Boris is a, a, a successful and, and, you know, accomplished painter. And I, I was struck, I was taking a screenshot of the movie, and I was struck by every shot in almost every movie is... Is a, I mean, it's really beautifully composed, and that level of attention to detail. Um, I really think Peter's personality has been so, it's so kind of fabulous and interesting that sometimes the, the technical, and then also the performances are so good, and then also some, you know, usually the script is so 
going on that it's easy to forget just how technically insanely accomplished his movies are. Um, and yeah, they're very painterly uh, in their composition, and it's just so striking. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was going to ask about the production uh, style of, uh, of your documentary. Uh, so from what I understand, you served as a director, you were a cinematographer, and I believe you also even operated sound. So what, what was your, your, your crew like uh, when you were shooting? It was, it was uh, a little bit of a bear. I mean, you know, my background is commercials and uh, corporate films and things like that, and a lot of television a lot of television uh, here in Florida. Um, and I usually have a crew, uh, but I can do it myself when I, when I have to. I, you know, had a budget for bringing a crew along, but I felt like this movie needed to be tremendously intimate and we needed to capture a really kind of almost an uncomfortable sense of intimacy. And I feel that in that regard, it's successful. I mean, I'm proud of it in many regards, but I do feel confident about that. There were certain moments we were able to capture with Peter, with Civil Shepherd, um, even with Jeff Bridges, um, and even with, with uh, Quinn Tarantino, where the fact that it's just two people in a room is kind of informs it, you know? Yeah, it definitely changes the whole dynamic of, of having, you know, lighting and crafts, you know, having that small group, it makes the person you're talking to more comfortable. It changes everything. And I, it was, the mic was, you know, it was a boom mic, so it's not how we're going to put a lab on you. It's a boom, and let's just talk. And I kind of didn't, you know, set it up and left it alone, and I was like, let's talk. And the camera's just kind of capturing that. I think it made for moments that are, that are uncommon. I believe in um, documentaries about Hollywood because, and obviously I'm a big fan of the genre uh, in general, from the Kisses in the Picture to Jaworski's Dune. You know, I would love to see this on, on a triple bill with those. Those are, I'm putting myself in a good category there. I shouldn't do that because those are awesome movies. Um, but it, it's in that genre, or it's attempting to be anyway. Um, and I think it has the moments where you're like, wow, that's a very unguarded moment and I don't think it would have happened if it was myself and two or three other people even one other person can change it um, I mentioned um, Mr. Bridges who was really nice he provided us with some some of his photography that we were able to use in the film and uh, for Jeff actually I, had, I think I had two people with me just because of the logistics involved and we were traveling together and I think uh, I actually think I, I, I uh, Peter's daughter Antonia was also a very fine director came along with me just to say hi to Jeff and stuff. So that one was a little bit different. It wasn't just me, but in the, but it was still me kind of operating everything. And somehow you're able to just kind of, you know, look the person in the eye and they look at you in the eye and you lock in and you have a conversation and every, everything else just kind of goes away. And uh, it, it, it was, I'd like to say it made it more challenging, but it, it, there was no other way to do it because it's a very personal film for me. Um, uh, if I might add, you know, the thing that interested me the most in the movie was how Peter dealt with this tragic event that occurred, how this very gentle guy um, that doesn't really even have any conflict in his movies, you know, uh, uh, I don't think Peter's ever been in a fistfight, has to deal with this incredibly violent act and this murder of this poor woman and how that affects his life and how, you know, in buying the film back, in redistributing the film himself, I find that all very heroic and romantic. And I needed people that shared my feeling that this was the most heroic, romantic story they'd ever heard. And, you know, that's pretty much me. <laughs> so, so now people are like, oh yeah, of course, it's very heroic, very romantic, but at the time I just, I didn't want anybody along that wasn't like what, you know. No, definitely. Um, I was curious, what kind of uh, camera did you use on the film? I used the Sony AH2000. Okay. It's a kind of a little prosumer kind of thing, but I shoot for everybody with it. I've shot for Nike and for Heineken and um, the Heat and, you know, uh, a lot of local commercials and a 
started to shoot up DSLRs. But when I started shooting in uh, in 2011, I realized that if I was going to be doing everything myself, I'd probably have focus problems. You know, because people are going to move around, and you know, so I better just go with the with this bad boy. You know, no, definitely. Uh, so it made it, it, and it looks great because uh, I stole a page from uh, Warren Beatty uh, from Reds. You know, I had Red Hot. He traveled around with this black background. He would drop it behind the witnesses. Yeah, it's a it's an incredible film that where the where the uh, fiction where the narrative is interlaced with these interviews that are commenting on what you're seeing the actors play out. It's a really what great film. Yeah, one of my favorites. It's one of my favorite movies too, and uh, and it's ironic because it was one of the movies that that uh, they all laughed in its initial release was fighting for for theater space with. You know, they don't always get pushed out by by Reds because of course Paramount have all, all the power and you know it's very hard to self-distribute and, and Bogdanovich addresses that very directly um, but in, uh, in a tip of the hat to that rivalry in that festival uh, or in, in that situation uh, I, I brought this black um, it's like a pipe and drape and I would put it behind everybody so there would be a uniform black background because I also didn't feel like I could compete with Robbie Mueller's composition so I thought, well, what the heck am I going to cut to? I, I'm, I'm, I'm cutting to one of the most beautiful looking movies ever by one of the most meticulous directors ever, one of the greatest DPs ever. You know, it's so beautiful. And then I have all this B-roll, you know, I have all these slides and letters and correspondence and stills. Then I'm also going to shoot them in a hotel room. That's just going to be too much. So I, I used this black background. And I think that worked well in, in that it's not it's just uh, a nice negative space where they can you can really listen to them definitely and it also keeps a, a consistency among all the people you're interviewing so the the actual space that you're in you know sometimes it can vary uh, wherever your subject is absolutely and I watched uh, a lot of doc I watched Peter's John Ford doc I watched uh, you know and I think it, people come up with some such creative solutions to how to shoot those things uh, you know, in my case, it was just not wanting to compete with the images uh, in the all and not wanting to compete with all the great objects that we were filming. And then the movie has, I think, I tried to give it a, a, a textual layer of, you know, showing slides, showing handwritten letters and handwritten cards. And, and it, in, in the movie's wistfulness and, and its themes of, you know, of time passing and aging, I also wanted to kind of record the way we used to record things. So it's the kind of movie that has a little bit of a nostalgia for VHS tapes and for, you know, the Dewey Decimal System when we show Killing of the Unicorn. We have the, le- you know, how you would find it at the library. They're just little things, but hopefully they inform the film's theme of um, things passing into memory. How do you think the uh, editing process uh, affected how you saw the final version of uh, of, the, of your film? Uh, were did things sort of shift uh, shift from your original conception, or was there anything that you sort of discovered uh, along the way in editing? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question, man. Uh, thank you for asking. It. Yeah, um, uh, editing was the big bear. Um, I had a cut of the movie that was like four hours. And it was really just kind of bloggers talking about the all and, uh, and writers, you know. Uh, and to me, that was fascinating. And I remember showing it to McDonald's and him saying, like, oh, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. This means so much to me. Thank you. Thank you. And I was like, do you have any notes for me, Peter? And he, you know, he was so, he's such a sweet, he's a very, all those stories you hear about this terror of the 70s, I have not met that guy. The guy I met was, or that I know is very kind and uh, and thoughtful. So he was very sweet. But I think it was clear that that was, you know, although it is somewhat interesting, that, that's not really a movie, that's just a bunch of people talking about the old Um And so I, you know, I had to, I kind of on my own, I was like, okay, we need to really bear down and, and, and pare it down and make it into a narrative. And for me, the, the, the centerpiece of the movie was always Peter distributing the movie himself and what that journey was like. And I also wanted people to experience the, the loss of this uh, this young 
late. He was 20 years old. And, you know, for tragic murder, I wanted people to really get a sense of the law. Um, and then the rest was, you know, Peter's career before, Peter's career after, and how these events colored his life and his family's life. And then on that skeleton, you start to build out the movie. Um, I, uh, I worked with an editor named Raul de la Cruz down here. We've cut some stuff. And I worked with Mario de Verona, who goes by M. de Verona. And we just, uh, he brought some wonderful stuff to it in terms of making the story uh, shorter and uh, tighter and, you know, where to trim this and where to trim that. And then the, the week before we were set to make the DCP, uh, the digital cinema package for... Definitely, uh, you know, editing is, you know, such a, an underappreciated uh, aspect of filmmaking that sometimes people really don't realize how much work goes into, you know, putting all the pieces together, especially in a documentary uh, where there isn't a, a screenplay to sort of uh, rest on. You're a filmmaker yourself, and so you know you can go with a doc so many different ways. Yeah, it, it's just, you can, you know, you start one direction when, you know, when you when you originally come up with the concept, but you also have to sort of go with what's in front of you when you start editing. And, and that, that is, it is a heartbreaking thing, because um, you have to lose some things that you love, and I know you, this has been said so many times by so many people, but, you know, it's not part of the narrative, or it slows it down, or it, or it uh, you know, does other things, and so I felt being at the Venice Film Festival and, and having your film premiere there uh, you know I mean that must have been an incredible experience it's, it's one of the most well-regarded festivals in the world Dreams about. 
dinner with Peter uh, and Louis Stratton and, and a friend of his, Timona, and then I had to excuse myself because I had to go back and introduce my film. So I'm, I'm running a little bit late, and I'm running through the Piazza di San Marco, and all I can think of is Bloom and Love, you know, the Mazursky film. Oh, George Siegel, great film. Yeah, <laughs> you know, where Bloom saw, you know, his ex-wife, and Yeah, when you're going down the river and... Yeah, and I wasn't hey man, could you get me over to the Sala Casino? And then I'm speeding through the through the water. I'm like, what is, what is even happening to me, you know? Uh, it was very, very uh, surreal. And, uh, you know, um, may I tell you how the, uh, you know, how I saw the all that for the first time? Oh, definitely. Wait, you know, I was 13 years old and the, the, the art cinema, you might remember, is a Uh, yeah, in the Coral Gables area? Yeah. Yeah, I'm originally from Coral Springs, but uh, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, you know, so you know the, the routine. And there was a guy yeah. that ran called Matt Chidiak, who was instrumental in he or he created the Miami Film Festival. And Matt uh, wanted to book the all as his Christmas present to South Florida, and it was 1981, and I think it had, or 82. It had opened in New York City in, in December of 81, and I think it didn't get to Miami or South Florida until December 82. And I remember I went, I was already a big cinephile, ride my bike to the, what's now the Bill Boxing Theater, what used to be the Beaumont Theater, and see the double features of George Caplewood program, like, you know, uh, uh, Health from Robert Altman, and uh, uh, maybe the Latin Metro from Truffaut, these very interesting double features that you would do. So I was already a cinephile, and I rode my bike there, I was 13, um, to see the movie, and I think the print hadn't arrived. And I found out later that Peter wasn't even actively booking it at that time, it's just Nat was very persistent that he wanted to bring this movie to Miami. And the print hadn't arrived, they showed something else, I think Veronica Roth instead. So I wanted her coming back the next night and saw it for the first time, it just blew my mind. I never seen anything was edited like that. And I went back every day for the next 13 days or whatever of the run and started, you know, uh, going to the library trying to get articles about it. Uh, photocopying, starting as a scrapbook about it and really getting obsessed with that movie. So to go from that, I remember I called my mom into buying a VHS machine. It was like 800 bucks, you know, and the tapes were 90 bucks, you know, just so I could watch the laugh I came out on VHS, you know. To go from that to 30 years later, I'm, I'm, I'm on a boat in Venice, you know, what? It's just ridiculous. It's, I don't, it's ridiculous. I can't even even believe that that happened. That was an incredible achievement. Uh, well, that's what, nice to say. What, uh, what other screenings do you have coming up, and uh, is there any plan uh, for uh, U.S. distribution? We were, we were lucky enough to get a couple people interested, so I'm waiting to see what's going to happen with them and hear, hear back. You know, they have the screeners, and um, we have uh, the Vienna Film Festival. And then we have been invited to a couple other ones. I don't want to say yet because it's not official, and I guess I don't want to be all cocky and, and say it, but, um, you know, God willing, we'll, we'll be able to play there. And really, I'm just, you know, enjoying this experience and having the opportunity to tell this story because it's, I think, a, a very unique, very unique love story. And I think uh, a very unique, look at a, at, a, at a cinephile and a director who's underappreciated, even though he's so appreciated, he's, he's still underappreciated, I think. Yeah, I think definitely also overcoming uh, tragedy and, you know, continuing to, to push forward, uh, you know, both personally and professionally uh, for Peter. Absolutely, man. He's, he's, I really admire him. I really admire him. And I, I've had some tragedy in my own life, and I feel like, I feel like that element allows me to kind of not, not that anyone would judge him, but, it, you know, there's an element of like, oh, I get it, man. Did you make a couple weird calls? Okay, I've made those calls. You know, I, I understand what that's like. Yeah, and, you know, I think, uh, you know, Peter's passion to get the film out there, uh, which I believe, I think it was after 20th Century Fox was attached to distribute, and then they didn't, and... You know, Peter sort of took the reins and, you know, said, I really want this film to be seen. Um, you know, it's it, in Dorothy Stratton's memory. It, uh, it needs to be out there. It's really heroic, and, in my opinion. 
authentic and, and beautiful. And just the fact that the guy was cutting it at his house, at Copa de Oro, and he's cutting it himself, you know, on this, you know, Steinbeck, you know, Steinbeck, you know, and he's, and he's, I mean, how, are, how do you do that when a woman you love has been murdered and you are there cutting this film that's an homage to her? I mean, for example, the song when they suggested that, you know, she gave him a greeting card with that on there a day after they had kissed. And then he took the greeting card, flew in Earl Poole Ball, Johnny Cash's piano player from uh, uh, Nashville or from Austin, maybe, and they put a, a grand piano in his suite at the uh, Plaza Hotel Ballroom and they wrote a song based on the greeting card. And what they suggested, he played the song first, sang it for her, figures he'll in a picture with this song. And this will be his love, and he'll prove his love to her. And then to have, you know, to have the, at your greatest moment artistically and your greatest moment of being in love, to have your magic stolen away at that moment, I think is just devastating. And then his response to it, which is just the way that he fought back and, and continued to fight back for 30-something, 40-something years, I, I just can't express my admiration for the guy enough. Yeah, and I, I must say the uh, the film that he made uh, after they all laughed, uh, Mask, uh, which you know I think is also probably one of his greatest films that uh, definitely needs to be rediscovered by everyone. Uh, also, you know, delves into that tragedy, and you know, it's such an emotional film. I don't know how mu- how much he reacted to Mask, but uh, uh, it's definitely up there in you know Peter's best films. John Mask, that's in the section on St. Jack and the section on Mask that I think you'll really enjoy, and the Mask section was cool because even his even Louise Stratton was like I never knew that I didn't know that and uh, and people saw things they didn't know even people in his family other people have told me that wow I didn't know that and uh, I think that just comes from Peter and I being alone in the room together you know the level of candor that he was able to express about making masks and there's even things that I had to take out because they were almost they're 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 You know, people trust you with their story, and you you have to. It, it's incredibly intimate. The, the the his relationship to Mask, and what, as you know, how the how much of it is really about Dorothy Stratton and, and their relationship. Yeah, I believe that uh, they had seen the the Elephant Man stage play together, and that was sort of a, a spawning. I mean, years back, and then that sort of uh, influenced Mask a little bit. I think so, yeah. He talked about that and how she, you know, she was very interested in, in, in the Elephant Man. She wanted it. She went to Double Day's bookstore and she wanted to buy this book about the real Elephant Man. And they said, you sure you want to buy that? And she said, yes. And, um, and then later, you know, his feeling about how great beauty is, is, is much like the opposite and how it sets you apart and how he says a lot of things like that in, in, in the movie. Um, and then the, the Springsteen stuff, that really caught me off guard. I mean, I knew that he had seen Springsteen and he wanted the Springsteen music in the movie. And uh, as a Springsteen fan, which I am, I'm like a fanatic, right? I've seen him like a million times live. But uh, when Peter speaks about the way the music affected him and how shaken he was when they took it out, And uh, what's great is the uh, director's cut of the film came out a few years ago on DVD with the Bruce Springsteen uh, songs in it. And, uh, you know, it's really incredible how much those songs affect the film. And when you're watching it, the emotional reaction that you feel as a viewer.
Definitely, it's uh, you know it shows Peter's passion as a filmmaker and you know fighting for your vision. Uh, you know even when you're within the, the big reins of you know Universal Pictures, uh, you know he was still there and you know he was still willing to fight. He was even it's amazing. He was even doing that when I went down to the set of She's Funny That Way. You know I mean obviously he had very supportive producers and he was um, in good hands and protected and so forth. But you could still. It was unwavering. I mean, this guy was making his movie, and it didn't matter what anybody said, you know. And that, I just, I want to take inspiration from that, you know. No, definitely. Um, I really appreciate you uh, participating in this interview, and I'm, I'm really looking forward uh, to seeing One Day Since Yesterday.